invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to continue our series of marriage manual, and that's what the Bible is, our manual on how to live before God as God intended. Last week we talked about the purpose of marriage. This morning we want to talk about God's plan of marriage. We live in a strange time in that. Marriage is one of the few things that you can enter into and really have no training pre-merit, uh, pre-wedding. Just show up at the courthouse, give them some money, and they'll give you a license. You have to take a driver. You have to try take a driving test and written test to drive a car. You have to go through years of training to be a doctor and get a medical license. But for some reason in society, if you show up with a few dollars and ask for a marriage license, you're granted one without any certification that you have a clue about what you need to do to be married. And sadly, many people a few months in realize we don't have a clue and we don't even like each other anymore, so we're not looking for a clue. We just want out. This morning, I want us to understand what was God's plan because one of the reasons we suffer so in a society and have such confusion about marriage, not only have we turned our back on God, but people have totally forgotten why God designed marriage and what is his plan. So look with me. Genesis chapter 2, let's begin in verse 4, get the background for two verses we're going to look at this morning. Genesis 2, 4, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation at the time the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub of the field had yet grown in the land, no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not yet made it rain on the land. So that lets you know when Noah said, when God told Noah it's going to rain, he said, what is that? It had not yet rained on the earth in Genesis. Well, how did the earth get watered? The Bible says, verse 6, water would come out of the ground and water the entire surface. So the under, underneath water tables would, would provide watering for the earth's surface and eventually for the plants who were there. The Lord God formed the man in verse 7 out of the dust from the ground, breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Look at verse 18, which is where we were last week. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper, and please, women, don't get offended by that term. There are those who say, well, that sounds kind of second rate. That sounds, I can't be the top, I'm just, a, I'm just a helper. Well, let me remind you in Scripture, that Hebrew word helper is the same word used for God. So in case you think God is inferior to man, which would be blasphemy, the word helper doesn't put you inferior, it says a role. The word helper is the same word used where it says, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from which cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord. The word is a present help in a time of trouble, same word. And it's referring to God. So here he says, I'm going to make one that's equal in, in his ability to serve and to help, made in the image of God. I'm going to make a helper and bring her to the man. So the Bible says, verse 19, the Lord God formed out of the ground the wild animals, uh, each wild animal, each bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, birds of the sky, every wild animal, uh, every wild animal, but for the man no helper was found who was like him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept, and God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. The Lord God made the rib uh, he had taken from the man into a woman. Brought her to the man, and the man said, last, at last. Uh, that really should lead the phrase. He didn't say this at last. He's saying, hot dog, at last. Wow, this is a creature I haven't seen. At last, this is bone of my bone. She's not like the other creatures I name. This is flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. She was taken from the man. And here's our focus for today. These Two verses record four phrases 
that are essential in marriage and God put them there for a purpose. Here's his plan, verse 24, four phrases. Therefore, or for this cause, shall a man leave his father and mother. That's phrase one. He shall cleave to his wife. They too shall become one flesh. They were both naked and not ashamed. Four things. There's a leaving, cleaving, a oneness, and no shame. I want us to focus on these this morning because it really does delineate the clarity of which God intended marriage to function. The truth is, the Bible says, a man shall leave father and mother. Now, in biblical times, people lived more often in tribes. We'd see the tribe of Abraham, the tribe of Isaac or Jacob. They stayed in family units. Many times they were somewhat nomadic and then they'd let their sheep follow grazing patterns or the cattle and they'd go grassland to grassland. But as, they, as tribes grew, they developed one area which would be their home near a spring or near water. And you'd have the patriarch and then you'd have the sons and their wives and then the, the grandchildren marry. And so they're all kind of together and the, the, the village would be really family. And the Bible says the day comes when one of the boys in the village says, I'm a man and I'm ready to leave my father and mother for a purpose. You're not leaving because he's mad. He's not leaving because mama doesn't cook good anymore. Not leaving because he wasn't happy. He said, I found somebody else that makes me happier than the relationship I have with my parents. And it's not in ugliness, it's in truth. He said, I'm ready to start something new. I'm ready to start my own family. I'm ready to start a, a marriage and have a family. And so there's a reason that you leave father and mother. And if you leave out Genesis 2 about what God had made and how, how he, he began to make all that is and said it's good except man alone and God provided for man a woman. He didn't provide a fraternity. He didn't provide for him a, a hunting group. He didn't provide for him a pal. He created a woman and he brought her to the man. And now God said this, this is my plan. A man's going to leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. Now what does that leaving mean? In marriage we expect... For a man and a lady to leave father and mother. But that is so strange if you think about it. Truly until you're of age. If your mother said publicly in a supermarket or school. I'm giving my son away. You'd say what? If a man showed up at a ball game and said. You know what I'm tired of that girl at our house. She's 12 and giving me fits. I'm giving her away. Anybody want her? You'd say what? But I've watched you in weddings. Both sides of the family be sitting calm, calm, calm. And I'll ask early in that ceremony, looking right at that daddy, who's going to give this woman away? Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And none of you flinch. Why? It's expected. See, the truth is there comes a time, and that's what God said, when a father gives away his daughter. And a son leaves his father and mother to be joined to a woman. The Bible says for this cause, there, there's, a, there's a compelling reason. There's that draw to say I'm old enough, I've met somebody I love, and that's who I want to be with. And I want you to notice there's also a functional reason. I cannot cleave to somebody else if my arms are already full with my mom and daddy and my brothers and sisters. I, I don't, I don't, I'd love you, but I don't love you as much as I love them. Then don't get married. So you can't embrace something new till you release something that you've got. And God made that clear. You can't cleave to a wife if you say, well, well I'll just accept you in and we'll all be together. No, he said, listen, there has to be a, a leaving. That, that, that almost sounds like cut. There comes a time when there's a severance. And you, you move away. Not, you don't treat your parents with disrespect. The Bible says we're to honor them. 
but you leave, when you leave your mother and daddy, it's never the same. And when you get in a, a row, which you'll do in marriage from time to time, and you say, I'm going home, I got bad news for you, you are home. When you say, I just, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to go back to my mom and daddy. No, you left mama and daddy. So the truth is, the Bible says there comes a point at which there's a leaving. But secondly, the Bible says for marriage to work, you enter that which is holy. See, when you leave father and mother, you're leaving for a reason, a calling upward. Now, this is real profound, so boy, write this down. You didn't get to choose who'd be your mom and daddy. But you choose, you chose who you say, I want to wake up every morning looking at her or him and share my entire life with them. You made that choice. But the reason you did that was not just because of the love attraction, and that is extremely strong. Not just because you like it, because they make you laugh or they make you feel better about yourself and better about being around people. They like the things you like, and that's all important. But ultimately, when you enter into marriage... You're entering into something that's holy. I've told you before, the word in Hebrew for marriage is the word kiddushin in Hebrew. It means holy ground. If I said to you today, that Bible is holy, you'd say, it sure is. If I started ripping pages out of it and throwing it around, you'd say, what has happened to our pastor? Did you see how he treated the holy Bible today? If I used terms about the Holy Spirit that were less than God-honoring, you'd say, what in the world has gotten into Brother Nick? So you expect to treat holy things with deference. The Bible says marriage is holy. Do you understand anything that comes into your marriage that's not of God and between the two of you? Anything that comes between the two of you is walking on God's holy ground? The Bible says when you leave father and mother, you're going to forsake all others. What does that mean? Well, the boy thinks, okay, I won't date her anymore, and I'm not going to have an affair. I'm not going to be promiscuous. And the girl thinks, well, I'm not going to date him anymore, and I'm not going to be promiscuous. Well, that's, that's important, and please, please make that commitment. But that's not all that says. When the Bible says forsaking all others, it doesn't just mean that girlfriend you had through college. It doesn't just mean that guy you dated off and on all the way through college. It means you're forsaking all others. That means sometimes in a marriage... The young lady can be so close to mama. Mama is always in the marriage's business. And you promise before God, I'm forsaking all others, including my mama's influence. Sometimes a daddy can love a little girl, a daughter like his little girl is a princess. And buddy, the first thing he hears something not going good, he comes and has a set tea with that young man. Now I'm telling you right now, wait, 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 wait. you said you're going to forsake all others. See, the truth is, anything that comes into that marriage from the outside in is against God's will. Meaning, you cannot have somebody else manipulating what you do in that household. That's your family. Now, that does not mean you don't seek counsel. That doesn't mean you don't accept from time to time hearing from your parents. And that doesn't mean you never talk to them. Yes, you do. Some of the greatest years I had was after I left home with my mom and daddy. And I'd call them and say, listen, we're facing something here. Can you tell me kind of what you think? But I didn't say, can you come move in with us six months until we kind of get figured out what we're going to do? The truth is there's a point at which you say there's a leaving. And it's a very strong, boy, you can almost hear the scissors cutting. It's very, it's very strong. And it's not true in any other relationship. But when you get ready to marry your husband or your wife, the Bible says there has to be a leaving. Secondly, the Bible says there has to be a cleaving. I've told you many times that word means to be stuck with or stuck together. It really means to be glued. 
Nobody, when you were dating, ever said to you, now you have to go with her tonight on the date. You have to see him this weekend. When you were dating, you counted the hours. In fact, when you were dating, if you were at work and you were going to have a date that evening, you were counting the hours at work, and it seemed like that day would never get to 5 o'clock where you could go. But something happens to some marriages because over time somebody will say, well, it's almost 5 o'clock. i got to go home in a minute. Oh, my. See, see, home is supposed to be that place that's a retreat. That person you said you'd love, cherish for the rest of your life is a person you ought to long to be with, period. The Bible says you need to be like you're glued together. You long to share life. Many of you don't understand this, so I want to clarify how strong is this bond you make when you get married. When I, got, when I got ordained to the ministry, I sat before deacons and other ordained ministers, and they asked me about doctrine, they asked me about church polity, they asked me about how I would address certain issues, they asked me, are, are you before God best you know walking with Him in purity? I mean, they asked me all those things. And I answered the best of my ability, yes, and they ordained me. But i got to tell you, the day I was ordained and became a pastor at age 19, I never made this promise. I never promised God, till death do me part, I'll preach. Boy, there have been a lot of Mondays. There have been a lot of Mondays that I kind of considered, Lord, if you'd let me make a living flipping burgers, I don't think I'd mess that up. See, the truth is, I made a stronger vow when I stood in the altar of First Baptist Church of Florence, Alabama with a young lady named Janine Kimbrough. I made a vow to her that I didn't make to God when I entered ministry. Here's what I said. I I said to my daddy as he was officiating, I repeated the vows, I will love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and health so long as we both shall live. I never promised that in the presence of my dad when I preached. But I sure promised that the day I said I'll be married. You understand where you get married? Now, so many of you and so many people today say, I don't want to get married in the church. And I understand that because they want, they want another setting or venue outside or they want some other decor or they want to do some things that we don't always approve of in the church. And so they say, well, I don't really want to be married in the church. But there was a day when most everybody was married in the church. And when you're married in a church, you come to something we call an altar. Now, I told you a minute ago, when you enter marriage, it's holy. And you come to an altar, it's holy. It's here in an altar. An altar is a place where people met with God in worship. It was sacred ground. When Abraham climbed Mount Moriah and offered his son to to God, he built an altar. When Elijah got ready to call down fire from heaven, he had to repair the altar. Scripture says that when Noah was finally off the ark, the first thing he did is build an altar and he worshiped God. This is a place of worship. But it's also a place where you say, this, what you do here is important eternally. This is significant in the eyes of God. We don't, we don't have a lot of things happen here uh, through the week that are frivolous. We don't have anything. Because we say, wait a minute, th- this is special ground. This is a place where people come to offer their lives in repentance and salvation. This is where people come to say, I'm ready to be baptized. We've commissioned missionaries here. We've prayed for missionaries in this altar. We've had times when people came with a broken marriage and we've restated vows in this altar. And so when you come to an altar to get married, what you're saying is, best I know this is a worship experience between me and God. So you get married in an altar in the presence of the Almighty. Secondly, you come to an altar because it's a place of sacrifice. 
When a bride and groom stand before me or any minister in altar, whether they say it aloud or not, here's what they're saying. I've come today to offer myself to God and to my mate as a living sacrifice. That's what it says in Romans 12. I beg you, my brothers. I beg you, brothers. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Present yourselves where? At the altar. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Where would you do that? In an altar. And so when a couple comes to be married, they're saying, I come today to offer myself in sacrifice to God and in service to my, to my mate. I, I'm not coming to demand. I'm coming because I want to give. I, I love him. I love her. And the spirit of that's done in an altar where we do what? We come here to say, Lord Jesus, I love you. And I want to give my life to you. I want to forsake sin for you. And I want to honor you. And that's where we do that very act of salvation. It's a place you come also for a time of sacrifice to God as you're married. It's also a place before God that's a place of surrender. So you don't come to an altar of marriage to say, well, I came today to see what I'm going to get. You come to altar say, here's what I'm ready to give. I want you to hear me very carefully. The love in marriage is the closest thing that God ever gave to us that's a picture of God's intention for man for himself. I've told you for marriage is to be the greatest example of the gospel that you can possibly live. Why? The Bible says God so loved the world that he demanded, Right? God so loved the world that he took. God so loved the world that he grabbed. No. God so loved the world that he what? Gave. When you say to that maid in an altar, I love you, that doesn't just mean I love you physically or I love you for the moment or I love you as long as you make me laugh or I love you as long as you make me happy. You're saying I've weighed this option And I've thought about all the possibilities. And I've seen you at some of your greatest moments. And I've already seen some of those things that are not so great. But I tell you, I love you. And I want to join my life to you. Not for what I get. I want to give myself away in honoring you. That's why a lot of people don't get married in church anymore. It's not that they're not male and female. It's that the call of God is not so compelling on their lives. They see this moment as an act of surrender to the Almighty and to each other. The Bible says when you get married, it's a holy vow. I tell you, I didn't promise this when I entered to preach. But that June 7th day that I held Janine Garland by the hand at 8 o'clock in the evening in that altar... I said, for better or worse. Anybody here give a testimony about those two? Richer or poorer? Anybody here know a little bit more what that is now? Sickness and in health. To love and to cherish till death do us part. See, the truth is in that moment when I married her, I married her in the presence of God. And I said, it's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's not in my witness. He's the power by which I have any hope of fulfilling that vow. There's a third thing it says. You need to leave father and mother and 
cleave to your wife. By the way, before I leave that, why, why is it so hard today for people to be stuck together with the joy that they had at the altar? Well, our government has decided that sexual privilege is higher than religious freedom. And so many people today believe that if you don't fulfill my needs physically, whether it's sexual, emotional, mental, whatever, if you don't fulfill my needs physically, then, then I don't have to stay with you. God wants me to be happy. I've asked couples that come and tell me that. Wait a minute, before we go further, here's my Bible. Show me where that verse is. God wants me to be happy. Show me that verse. And by the way, if any of you have it, I'll be glad. I'll be right over there after the service. It's not in there. You know what God wants you to be? Holy. In fact, it says very plainly in 1 Peter, Be ye holy, even as your Father in heaven is holy. And so many people say, well, if he, if he doesn't make me happy more, I'm free to go. Well, she doesn't, make me, she doesn't meet my needs. I'm leaving. Uh, okay. What, what verse is that? If your marriage is built on surrender and sacrifice and the love of God, which is a giving love, at what point did God say, well, you know, you really don't meet my expectations of what I thought of you. I'm done with you. Oh, no, God, don't do that to me. Why? That's the way you treated your mate. See, the Bible says there has to be a leaving. What, what causes some people not to want to stay in a marriage? They, you, you, you don't please me physically. Some people leave a marriage because adultery has become so prevalent. They say, well, I'm just going to have an affair. I, I want you, I'm going to say something, and you're not going to like it. But I'm going to say it because it's true. The church today is taking a lot of abuse from the world over marriage issues. But one of the reasons that the world is so confused by us, they say, I don't understand why. And this doesn't necessarily mean people that are of the gay lifestyle. It means just people in general. Why are you suddenly, church, so upset over homosexuality? You are not upset over adultery because I know people in church have been having an affair for years and they still go and you hadn't said a word. And I know people who had serial marriages because they got tired of this one and this one and this one and this one and they just kept getting married and you didn't say anything. And you don't really say a whole lot about porn. A man can have his, his computer loaded up with pornography and you say we shouldn't do that, but you don't teach with the same fiery brimstone voice as you do when you talk about homosexuality. See, the truth is, now, you're not going to like this, but it's true. Do you understand if you are single and having sex outside of marriage, you're just as wicked in the eyes of God as a homosexual? Both of them are sin. If you're married and you've had an affair or having an affair, you're just as wicked in the eyes of God as the homosexual that today is on the headlines as something as wicked and vile. Do you understand that if you are flirting outside of marriage and you're really wishing you could be with somebody else, you're setting the stage to commit a sin that's just as vile in the eyes of God as homosexuality. And that's why the world's confused. Are you just opposed to homosexuality? Well, no, we're opposed to it. Well, why don't you condemn that with the same ferocity that you condemn homosexuality? It's a good question. The Bible says, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. Now look at this. They too shall become one flesh. Oneness is very clear, and it begins with a covenant. It begins in that altar when you seal that covenant one with the other. Any two anythings we've seen can copulate. Uh, 
any two human beings and sadly any two people with anything else. Animals copulate. So what's the difference in marriage? Marriage is based on the covenant that's made between a man and a woman and God. Oneness begins when you really meet that person and before God and your family you say, I'm willing to love this person as long as I live with the love of God Almighty helping me. It's an amazing thing. Most people in our generation, we have some that have sinful parades and they placard their sins and they want you to rejoice the fact they march down the street and tell everybody what a sinner they are. But most people that have any conscience don't brag about their sin. I dare say some of you last night probably looked at something you shouldn't look at and you didn't come this morning with that on your chest saying, guess what I did last night? I looked at some porn. See, see, people normally don't brag about that. I hope not, but there's probably some in here that did a sexual act last night with somebody not your mate. Well, normally you don't come in Sunday morning and say, guess what I did? So, see, that's a hidden thing. And, and, and if we even are in a relationship of dating and we did something sexual that we know is not to be done till marriage, we still don't come and brag about it. It's an amazing thing when a couple gets married... A young couple gets married, boy, they they just look like two GE light bulbs when they get in that car. And somebody, if they've got quote-unquote friends, has marked their car all up with all kinds of stuff. They'll say, just married, so the whole world will know. They're not ashamed. We're getting ready to go away and consummate our marriage, and they're not ashamed. They're, They're honking the horns and excited. And the next morning when they get up and come out of the room and go to have breakfast, they're they're not ashamed. Why? Because they entered into marriage in the covenant of marriage, fulfilled it according to the will of God, and there's no shame. The Bible says they came out as one flesh. Now, now what does that oneness mean? Oneness is so unique in marriage that I'm going to say some things right now that's going to make you cringe, and it should. If it doesn't, there's a problem. I'm going to say some things that will make you cringe to show you how unique the oneness, physical oneness of marriage is intended to be. The Bible says God made Eve, brought her to man, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, they shall be called woman. And we know that they had intercourse because they would have children. God made Adam, he formed and fashioned Eve, but then they had children. So God made sex to be fulfilled within marriage. It's intended, plan of God. But here's, here's the uniqueness of God's relationship design. He said, the male and female in marriage shall know each other physically, become one flesh. But listen how sordid it is and how, by contrast, how unique that bond is between a man and woman in marriage. When I say this, you're going to flinch and you should. What if God, what if we'd found out that Adam, after, after God said you have Eve, what if Adam had said, well, now I've had a son. I guess I can do with him what, what I've done with Eve. Is that right? We can have the same level of intimacy? See, and you say, oh, no, no. Uh, now we've had a daughter. I, I'm assuming I can have her just like I had her mother, right? No. And then eventually there's going to be other mothers in, in the tribe and other fathers in the tribe and other children and other aunts. I guess I, as a man, because you said I can have a female, it's any female, right? It's open season and I can have any of them. And if I decide I can have any of the men, is that, is that right? And a woman, I can have any man or I can have any woman, is that right? You say, oh, pastor, no, he didn't know. Why do we live in that kind of world and it doesn't make us nauseous? 
See, the uniqueness of God was that there would be one plus one equals what? One. The Bible says there'll be one flesh. Now listen, once you're married and you, you can be one, that's a wonderful experience. And if you, if you were one of those that saved yourself till marriage, you still remember the night you got married and that moment when suddenly you, know, you have that privilege of being one physically. And it's wonderful. Designed by God is wonderful. But the truth is it's so unique that in that moment, in that moment in the days to follow, you are so in love you can't imagine ever being away from that other person. And the Bible says that's what God intended for a lifetime. Marital oneness. In that moment it's the most intimate, tender, vulnerable moment of any. The Bible says the two shall become one flesh you're looking at a person that's one. I have two arms, two legs, two eyes, two ears, but I'm one person. If somebody said to me, well, Brother Nick, I know you're one, but goodness, you got two arms. You know, it's got to be tiresome every day putting on a shirt for two. Let's just cut off that arm. You just put on one shirt sleeve. You don't need two arms. I'd say, are you nuts? Brother Nick, you must grow weary of having to Put on glasses for both eyes. Let's just cut out one and you just have one eye. Not that way you can't focus on just one eye. I want it to work with two. I say, are you crazy? You know when I got married? Janine is so much a part of me in the eyes of God and I a part of her. The Bible says the two become what? One. It would make no more sense for me to sever my right arm than to sever my wife from my life. In fact, in the eyes of God, he said it's so strong till death do you part plan of God last thing he says is this Bible says they were naked not ashamed now you know what that means and I'm not going to get gross and I, I, I won't get explicit marriage oneness and naked is a good thing but here's what he said naked and not ashamed that's the focus see the, the one thing that happens on the night of your wedding when you finally are alone, just the two of you together, and you have that moment of physical intimacy, and this isn't a surprise to me, there's nothing hidden. I mean, you're really vulnerable. <laughs> there's nothing hidden. I mean, up till now, you could wear a shirt, or your lady could wear a skirt, or you could wear pants, or you cover up some things, but, but now there's nothing hidden. And the Bible says in that moment, you ought not feel shame. You ought to feel joy because you are doing what God said in giving yourself to another person. But it means more than just physical. In the, in the consummation of marriage on your honeymoon, it's a physical union. But there's so much more. Here's what he's saying. See, when you're joined as one, you're joined emotionally, spiritually, mentally, volitionally, financially, every way. And too often after people are married, they begin to be much more open with each other. And certainly a wife, because so often you ladies like to share what's on your heart. Men or more tight-lipped most of the time. We'll fuss when they don't like something, but we don't want to have to talk about it. Women want to talk about what they feel, what they think, or what their hurts are, their concerns, or if somebody hurt them. And too often, a wife will expose her emotions to her husband, and he'll laugh at her. She'll say, when you did this, you really hurt me, and you say something stupid like, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. See, what happens is she exposed herself emotionally and now she's ashamed of wish she had never said it because she thought she could trust you 
and you treated her with contempt. So, see, when, when you expose yourself, you expose yourself with your dreams. And you can say to your mate, you know what I'd love to see us do one day? Here's my dream. And if you share your dream and you're excited about it, and that mate said, you're not serious, are you? I can't believe, you're not really thinking about that, are you? Now that mate says, boy, I, I, I thought I could share who I was and not be ashamed, but I was wrong. You see, the truth in marriage, it's not just you're physically exposed, but in marriage you are exposed before long, your mate knows everything you think and you don't think about. Everything you wish you could do and everything you don't have any intention of doing. And so in the process, the Bible says when you get married, you need to be sure that at every level when you share your spiritual desires, many a wife in this church has said to their husband, I, I so want us to walk with God. And he says, you're the spiritual head of this family. I don't, I don't, I don't fool with that stuff. Oh, my Oh my, you mean I've covered up my spiritual side and I'll never share that with you? So when the Bible says naked but not ashamed, it means I can be totally open, totally honest, totally exposed, and you're going to love me and help me work through or help me share in. The Bible says the two people should become one flesh on holy ground, never be ashamed because it's the plan of God. When you've exposed yourself and your emotions and your spirit and your heart and your thoughts, when you're standing there exposed, there ought not to be any fear. You ought to be assured there's no hidden agenda in the eyes or the plan of your mate. There's no motives that are impure. When your mate's looking at you, he's looking at you and not somebody else that's in his mind and when your wife is looking at you she's not thinking about somebody else in her mind no shame it means that when somebody share with you what's on their mind and it's a hurt you don't spend the rest of your life belittling you I remember you you that one is afraid about that yeah that's pitiful that's pit you're just pitiful that, that's shameful see the Bible says when you really love somebody you, you don't reason find a reason to club them here's a real simple definition when you really love somebody, you meet somebody that loves you more, knows you better than anybody else in the whole world, and chooses to love you anyway. A young lady was asking her grandmother some years ago about how how do you how did you and granddaddy have a fiftieth have fifty years of marriage? They were celebrating their fiftieth anniversary. The young lady who was not yet married asked her grandmother at the reception, how how'd you and Grandpa make it 50 years? I, I'm not married. I'd like to know, what's your secret? Grandmother looked at her young granddaughter and said, well, young lady said, I just made a determination before we married that there's some things even then about your dad that bothered me, but I made a determination. I make a list of 10 things, and those things that most aggravated me, I made a, I made a covenant with myself. If any one of these 10 things happen, I'm just going to say that's him. I can't change that. I'm not going to get my blood pressure up. I'm just going to forgive him and move on. And the young lady said, well, did that work? She said, well, I never actually made the list. But I can say this. Every time he did something made me really mad, I thought to myself, you ought to be really glad that's on that list of ten. See, the truth is, there, aren't no per there are no perfect marriages. You know why? There are no perfect people. But you know what God calls imperfect people in the presence of Almighty God for two to join together in the eyes of God. And here's what they're saying. 
God, I want to serve you by loving my mate for as long as we both shall live in the plan of God. It's a real simple picture. If two people really enter into marriage saying, God is the Lord of my home and my heart, He's the great passion in my soul. I want to be like him more than anything else. See, as two become one, the closer you're on your pursuit individually of walking with God, guess, guess who else you're getting close to in the journey? If you really, really, really are more in tune with God, along the journey you're going to get closer and closer and closer to each other. The secret of longevity is what God said in the book of Genesis that's now over 3,000 years old. Moses penned that text. Here's what it says. There's a reason, a good reason, when a man ought to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, those two should become one flesh. They're both naked, but they're not ashamed.